Who are we? What is our purpose? What is the purpose of the people of God? Those are the questions I'm hoping to address this morning as we look at this text. So this morning, we are bringing our series in the early parts of Genesis, which we have titled, For All Generations to Come, God's Promises in the Story of the World to a Close. This is the final sermon in this series. Uh, So I forgot to announce that junior highs, you are dismissed. I see Josh walking around super annoyed with me back there. Uh, Yeah, just he's like, what is this guy? So junior highs, you are dismissed uh, to go. So sorry about that. Okay, so as I was saying, we are bringing this sermon series uh, for all generations to come, God's promises in the story of the world to a close. This is the last sermon in that series. And as many of you have likely noticed throughout this series, we have focused in large part on the identity of God and on the identity of humanity in general. And we've sought to show that humanity, that we are those whom God created for a purpose, but that we chose our own path. We rejected God's purposes for us but that God in grace and in love continued to pursue us. That while our identity then is one of being sinful, it is also one of being deeply, deeply loved because of who God is, because of his identity, that he is gracious, that he is loving, and he is our creator. But I think a big question that we need to ask in the midst of that, especially as we kind of launch out into the rest of the scriptures, is how do the people of God fit into this? How does God's work through ancient Israel make sense in the midst of God's care for all of the world, in the midst of all of humanity's sin? How does God's work through the church today fit into this story? What is our identity as a church? And how do we relate both to God and to the rest of the world? Well, that's what I'm trying to address today as we come to the final text in this sermon series. Because in today's text, we are being introduced to one of the most significant figures in all history, Abram, whom God later renames Abraham, which is why when I saw his name, I read it as Abraham, but his name is Abram, and God later renames him Abraham. And if you know your Bible fairly well, there's a good chance that you recognize that the introduction of Abram is a massive, massive moment in the scriptures. Because basically, from here on out, Almost all of the Bible revolves around telling the story of Abraham and his family line, which comes to be known as Israel, and which the New Testament claims the church is, as the Apostle Paul puts it, grafted into, that we are the renewed people of God. But that focus on Abraham's line from here on out can clearly make us feel as if, in the midst of our sin, God chooses this one people out of the world to give his special affection to over and against the rest of the world. That if the world is that which is sinful and God is that which is loving, that God chooses just a few to give that love to over and against others. That this is basically God having his favorites. This is divine favoritism where God chooses some over and against others. And that can then bleed into how we conceive of the church today of God's renewed people under Christ. We can come to see ourselves as this kind of people who are set apart over and against the rest of creation. Is that who we are? Is that who the church is? Is that our purpose, just to kind of be this holy people separated from others? Well, I would argue that while there is some truth to it, that we are meant to be a distinct people, that ultimately that is a misunderstanding of who we are. And that's what I want to try and show you today looking at this text. Because we look at the details of this text, 
then in particular, we're kind of going to be moving to with everything that we do here is to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. When we look at the details of the whole text, but in particular, it's 12, 1 through, 1 through 3, which is honestly one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. Since the, this is the foundational text in all the scriptures that helps us understand the identity of the people of God. But when we look at this text and we see in the context of what we've been looking at from Genesis 1 through 11 and of God's overwhelming grace and love for the whole of creation, what we will see is that God's call to Abram, his setting apart of this people, while clearly is a glorious blessing to them, was a choice that God made, not for the sake of favoritism, but that he made for the sake of all, for the sake of the world. And that the reason the Bible comes to focus so much on ancient Israel and so much in the church is not because God loves some more than others, because God's blessing has come on some so that through them, that blessing would extend and spread out to others and others would be welcomed in. And that's what I'm going to try and show you as we look at this text this morning. But to do that, what we really need to do is we need to see this in the context of all of chapters 1 through 11. So as we kind of cap the end of this sermon series, I want to try to sum it all up. What have we been seeing, and how does this kind of launch us into the rest of the story? Here's okay. Let's think about what we've seen so far throughout Genesis 1 through 11. What we have been seeing over the last number of weeks, is both God's vision and heart for the whole world, and we've seen our, that is humans, absolute rejection and almost destruction of that vision. We have seen God create a world so good because he longed to be with us. We have seen God long to bless the world with his very presence, with the presence of the God who is love itself, from whom flows all goodness, all glory, all pleasure, all wonder. He created this world so good so that he himself could be with us. But we have also seen, and this is a really interesting point, and it's important for us to get this because we often miss this. We have seen that in creating the world good and with this vision, God did not create the world in a state of absolute completion. That is, he created the world good and with a desire to be with us, but he wanted that presence to actually expand and grow throughout the world, okay? This is something that we often miss. We often think that when God created the world, everything was done as God wanted it to be in the very end. But actually, God created it good, but not in a way that it couldn't actually be improved. Now, that sounds strange, but God actually wanted it to expand and grow. And he created the Garden of Eden and placed us there so that we would actually, as we said, Edenize creation, Take God's presence. Take his goodness. That was specifically manifested in the Garden of Eden and spread it everywhere. And that's where the purpose of humanity comes in. For we were created in God's image and given everything we were ever needed, given God's presence itself so that we could actually take care of the world in such a way that we would expand God's glory to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. In other words, God made the world good. But with, its a, but with a desire for its goodness to expand, and he graciously created us and provided for us so that we could serve him, serve one another and the world, and thus spread his blessing everywhere. Bring God's vision to reality. That is how this whole thing began. Not only with God's glorious vision for all the earth then, all creation, all peoples to be blessed with his presence, but with a good commission to humans to be used to see that vision 
become reality. But what we saw happen after that is what we've been looking at the last number of weeks, which is the absolute descent of the world into chaos and confusion. Because God's image bearers, whom he had put in charge, whom he had entrusted with this vision, did the very opposite of what we were created to do. In other words, we didn't actually live for God, others in the world. We lived completely for ourselves. We turned against God. We turned against one another. We turned against the world, and we turned completely toward ourselves. We lived for us. We did not rely on his presence and on his glorious provision, and thus curve out of ourselves for the sake of others and the world and God, but rather we curved in, and we let everything be about us. And the horrifying result of that is that rather than spread God's goodness and blessing, we did the opposite because we chose that which is not God. Because if God is life, and if he is the creator, and if he is love, then when we choose what is not him, we choose death. We choose actually destruction. We choose decreation. We choose chaos. And those are the things that came to mark the world. Because again, in choosing our own path, we were literally choosing what is not God. In fact, in Genesis 1 through 11, things get so flipped on their heads that as Pastor Trish so wonderfully pointed out to us last week, when looking at the story of Babel, not only do we see humans live for themselves and thus turn against God, but through the building of the Tower of Babel, we see humans come to try to make a name for themselves by trying to coerce God into doing their bidding. We got to think about that. Think about what Trish showed us last week. What she showed us is that by the time you get to the text, right before ours, which is the story of the Tower of Babel, no longer is it God's vision for the world that's going forward, and we are his instruments. Now it is our vision for our kingdoms, and we're trying to make God our instrument in our own vision for the world. And so as we saw last week, God comes down and actually punishes, mercifully punishes, this rebellious and idolatrous world by scattering the people everywhere. So they will no longer do this. By scattering people all over the earth into the various nations around the world, God splits them up, and the peoples are divided everywhere. But then the text just ends. That story just is over, just like that, with God, with God scattering the people which I realize may not seem that significant, but it is, because that should make us feel actually hopeless. It should make us question if God's good vision for the world and his promises to bring it to pass are even possible. And that's especially true because the story of Babel is actually the first story that we have in Genesis, meaning the first story we have in all of the Bible that appears to come to a conclusion without any word of hope without any word of grace from God piercing through. We had consistently seen hope and grace pierce through amidst our sins. God kept making promises to us. So he had promised in Genesis 8, 21 and 9, 11 through 17 that he would never let this world go, that he would not let it actually go into decay, that he would hold on to this world, that he was so committed to this creation that he would not let it be fully decreated. And he had promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, right after the very first sin, that one day, one day an offspring of the woman, one day a seed of the woman would who would crush the head of the serpent so that evil itself would be overcome. And we actually need to reflect on that promise for a moment here. Because, okay, 
if you have one of those black Bibles and you turn back just a few pages in your Bible to page four, the bottom right, that's where Genesis 3.15 is. When you look at that promise, what is perhaps the most surprising thing about that promise is that God says that he is going to crush the head of the serpent, that he's going to reverse the effects of sin through a seed of the woman, through an offspring of the woman. Because what that means is that he's saying that the very being that messed this whole thing up, the very thing that threw the world into decay, he will use to reverse it. That humans somehow will be involved in the reversal of sin and death. Why? Why on earth would God do that? Why would he promise from the very beginning that it would be humans that would reverse the effects of sin? Well, to quote a scholar named Michael Goheen, the reason is because God's method of redemption moves along the same channels he cut at creation to accomplish his universal purpose. To put it a different way, and perhaps a clearer way, God promised to save the world through humans because God just chose from the beginning of time that he would work to have the creation be what it's meant to be through image bearers. For whatever reason, guys, God has just chosen that he is going to work in this world through humanity, through us. And so even though we threw it into disarray, even though we turned against it, God actually promised that there would be a people, there would be a person, there would be an offspring of the woman who would come forward and would restore this world to what it was meant to be. He had created us to bless one another and he refused to deviate from that plan. And so just as he had graciously created us and commissioned us to work in the world for his glory, so he promised that he would work through us to restore the world for his glory. God is staying true to his chosen method of caring for this world. But that promise seems to be gone when you come to the story of the Tower of Babel. It should almost be haunting us because it's like, where is it? Why hasn't this seed come? We've seen nations, we've seen people come forward, but all we've seen is just sin, and it seems to be spreading everywhere. People are just scattered, but it's with their sin. And that's what we should be feeling at the end of the story of the Tower of Babel as we get to our text, is a feeling of hopelessness. In fact, I think we're meant to be continuing to feel that as we read through the genealogy of Shem. In fact, I assume that when I read the text before my sermon today, that many of you were bothered that I was reading this text. Because you're like, why on earth is he reading every single word of the genealogy? Cannot we just skip over this part? I'm sure many of you are wondering, why am I reading these words out loud? And you were wondering why I didn't just do what I'm sure, frankly, most of us, I include myself in this, guys, most of us do when we get to genealogies. Skip them. You know, he's like, whatever. Let's just kind of run over it. Or if you feel bad because you're like, okay, it's God's word. This is supposed to be important. We just read it super fast. But we don't pay attention at all. Why didn't I just do that? Let me tell you, honestly, I was tempted to. That actually was my original plan. I was just going to kind of skip over all that and just focus on God's call of Abram in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. But as I was reading this and writing the sermon and praying about it and studying this text, I started to feel actually... 
I think this genealogy is very intentionally here, not just for us to read, but to feel. Feel it. Feel the passing of time. And what comes along with that is longing for something better. Feel that deep inside. Because it actually grows when you get to Terah's family line in 11 uh, verses 27 to 32, when it talks about Terah's son, Haran, dying before him. We have children dying before their fathers. We've got Sarai, Abram's wife, childless, unable to conceive. And so what we're meant to be feeling, I think, as you read this genealogy and the prologue to getting up to Abraham's story is this feeling of brokenness, this feeling of longing for something to be better. We need something more. And so as you actually were feeling while I was reading that text that you were aching for the reading to be over, that's a small part of the ache we are meant to feel as we read this text. Please think about these years passing by. This amount of time, God promising and nothing. Year after year after year. That would make us long for God to break in and do something. And maybe you feel that right now in your life. You look at your life and you long for something different. You long for better. The passing of time, the pain of life, the desire to have something that just won't come, it's pressing you down and you want something more. We all feel that at different times because the world is not what it's meant to be. We feel it constantly. I mean, th- think about political pa- campaigns for a second here. Why is it that every single time we see someone running for basically any office, their platform always revolves around making things better than they currently are? Why do we constantly need to promise to improve things and we always buy into it? Because things are not the way we're supposed to be and we can feel that deep down inside. Because no matter how much any political figure is able to do, it's never enough. That's the next person is always able to run on a platform of hope for more change. Because again, the world, no matter how much we do, is not the way it's meant to be. We need something better. We need something more. And we all feel that, and you might be feeling it so deep down right now. I want us all to feel that right now. I want us to feel that as we come up to this text. Feel the passing of time. Feel hundreds of years going by. Feel this list of random names just fading into the abyss of history with seemingly no meaning, with seemingly no hope. Feel the fear of being one of those names whose life can just be summed up by saying they lived, they had a child, and they died. And that child lived, had a child, and died. And that child lived, I had a child and died. Year after year, for hundreds and hundreds of years, with nothing but just sin spreading and there being no hope. That's what we're meant to feel. Until all of a sudden, one of those names, one of those people, one of those seeds of a woman, has God graciously speak to them. Until literally, out of nowhere, with no prompting from his life, with nothing in a text to make us feel like this is coming, nothing about him seems impressive, that same voice that created the world, 
that promised to restore the world to a chosen seed who would crush the head of the serpent, that same voice graciously speaks to this one man named Abram, and he says, starting in chapter 12, verse 1, go, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Finally, God's word of grace pierces through. God's word of hope, God's mercy is heard once again. And it is heard in a way that not only sets the stage for what is to come in the Bible, that's for the history of the world, but it's also heard in a way that shows us that what is to come is deeply connected to what we've seen already. It's okay, I want us to notice what's going on here. Notice the wording here. So over the course of our sermon series through Genesis, God's holiness, his otherness has been a theme we've consistently seen, that God is totally other than us. We sang about this, only a holy God, which is seen most significantly in his shocking response to our sin, where he not only justly punishes our sin, but seeks to welcome, forgive, and love the sinner. But here in these words to Abram, God is now setting a people apart. Go, go from your country. Go from your people. Go from your father's household. He's actually setting a people apart. He wants Abram to be set apart from the world, from the world in which he is known that's been ravaged by sin and destruction. He is calling him out to be the father of a people who are going to be holy. He is just calling Abram out to be like him, to be again his image bearers, which makes complete sense because as verse two explains, his purpose in doing so is first of all, to make Abram's family into a great nation, to bless him, and to make his name great. And again, notice the wording there. It's the wording of blessing and making your name great. In the Tower of Babel, they gathered together to make a name for themselves, to make their name great. God is now promising he will just do that for Abram. But also back in the garden, when God had created Adam and Eve, it says that he blessed them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He is now giving that blessing to Abram. He's saying to him, I will give you that blessing. The nation, the people that will come from you, I will give to them the blessing I gave in the garden to Adam and Eve. In other words, God is setting this people apart for the sake of being the restored humanity, for being a nation blessed with God's very presence, for being a people who have God's laws so that they can live according to God's good ways. That is what God is graciously promising he will do here. And we need to stress that, that God is just promising to do this, that this is absolute grace. Because again, this comes out of nowhere. Like it actually feels like bad writing. We're just kind of talking about Abram's family and all of a sudden it's like, and then God said. It's like, oh, okay, we're just, God's now talking. We didn't really, why is this happening? God just does this. He pierces through in the midst of kind of the, the, the distress, the decay to say this. There's nothing about Abram. There's nothing impressive, nothing that he has done that prompts God to do this. And there's nothing that he has to do to earn this. Yes, he's told to go. He's told to go from his people, from his father's household, but that is an act of faith in God. It's not an act of earning something. God is not saying to him, go from your native land and become a blessing. Go out and earn your way with me. I will give you my law and you must obey it or else I'm not going to bless you. No, God is just saying, I will do this. I will bless you. I will make you into this people. This is the grace of God 
piercing through in this world that it just promises to do this. But okay, why? Why does God just do this? Why does he, amidst all these nations, amidst all these people, choose this particular people? Why does he call them out like this? Why does God set Abram and his family apart? To ask the question a different way, why did God choose this particular people and not another? Why did he choose what became ancient Israel? Why did he choose the church? Because, guys, this is our story. I mean, in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, the Apostle Paul actually quotes from Genesis 12, 3, and calls it the gospel announced in advance. And then he goes on to say that if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. But what does that mean? What is that blessing for? Why are we blessed with God's presence in this kind of way? What does the text say? It says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Do you see what he was saying? Why has God done this? Why did he choose this people? Why did this grace come upon Abram and his family? Why did they get this blessing? So that, as it begins to say at the end of verse 2, so that they would become blessing. So that, as it says at the end of verse 3, so that all peoples on earth, and the Hebrew actually says all families on earth, which harkens back to chapter 10 of Genesis, where it lists all those nations, all of those families, all those people who have rejected God, who had sought to make him the instrument of their story, and whom God punished by spreading out all over the world. God did not just leave them to the side. He didn't have to say, ah, they're worthless. I'll just choose this one and just do this thing for them. He actually set this people apart so that through them, the blessing would spread to the nations. That is why God did this. God called Abram to be separate because he loves the world, because he wants all of creation, every tongue, every nation to bow before him and to know his goodness. God called Abram to be separate. And graciously promised to bless him and his people so that through him, that blessing would be offered and spread to others. And this is so important for us to see. Because not only then do we see God continue to promise to use humanity to do what he said he was going to do. But, what, but also what this means is that God's setting apart of his people is a work of grace, not just for those people, but to work through them. God did not just save us for us, but to work through us. Guys, God is on a mission. It is his mission that we are brought into, and that mission is to restore the world to what it was meant to be. And his people are both the object of that mission and the instrument of that mission. Abram's line was to be a renewed humanity who would receive God's blessing, God's presence, God's gracious and wonderful laws, God's complete provision so that through them, God would expand that blessing to all nations. God sets his people apart and blesses his people with his presence for the sake of the world being offered that blessing. 
Okay, this, I think, is the very thing that Israel in its history, in the Old Testament, and maybe it was the church that its history has constantly struggled to grasp. But this is what we've got to get. This is who we are. This is who the people of God are. Those who are set apart, saved by God for the sake of the world. If we are on mission, which we should be, we have to recognize it's not our mission. It's God's. He is the ultimate missionary. And he is using us in that story graciously. But it's not about North Park. It's not about the growth of the church. It's about Jesus Christ. This is who we are. But this is so often what Israel and the Old Testament and the church has struggled to remember. Because we have tended to either one of two sides. I mean, if, if you read through the Old Testament over and over again, Israel struggles because they either longed to be like the other nations, just to look like the rest of the world, and thus not be a people set apart, or they struggled because they sought to be so set apart that they wanted nothing to do with the rest of the world, nothing to do with the nations around them. In so many ways, you could boil down the Old Testament story to that very failure, the very failure of God's people to be who they were always called to be. But that is so often our struggle as well. We can so easily struggle to understand our identity as those who are set apart, who are given God's word, who are to be a distinct people so that we would love and welcome the world into the blessing and grace of Jesus Christ. The church today often tends to want to either shift to be like the world or to make sure with every fiber of our being that we are distinct and thus we end up separating ourselves completely from the world. And we all, myself certainly included, tend to one side or the other. And if you're sitting there right now thinking, that's right, the church needs to hear about that side, you're probably in danger of the opposite then. That's just the way that we are. And I feel this deeply within myself. I tend towards, I I feel like I often go back and forth. And these tendencies, they come from good intentions. The one comes from a desire to love others and build the church, while the other comes from a desire to love God's truth and firmly uphold his word. But they are not mutually exclusive. Yes, we are to be distinct, but so that we would give others God and his grace and his love, so that we would give people the glorious, amazing, sacrificial, life-saving, death-defeating love of Jesus Christ. We are set apart and blessed by him so that we would bless others. We cannot choose one over the other Because Jesus, Jesus did it. For when Jesus came, that son of Abraham, he came as one so different than anyone else, so distinct that he perfectly obeyed the law. And thus was not only distinct from the world, but loved the world. Was not only righteous, but was forgiving. Who was holy like God, because he loved the sinner and transformed them through that love. He was God himself in the flesh. He was what God's people, what humanity was always called to be, for he was the very image of God. He was the image of the invisible God, the complete embodiment of truth and love so that others could be saved and know the glories and wonders of our God. And we killed him for it. We killed him because that's who he was. In fact, John 3, I'm sure many of you know one verse specifically from John 3, but it is one of the most haunting passages in the scriptures. Because in John 3, 16, it says, 
that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but has everlasting life. But then in John 3.19, it says, and this is the judgment of the world, that we love darkness rather than light. We killed Christ because of his love for us. Because he came to save us, we couldn't take it. We couldn't take one who was so confrontational on our sin and so willing to forgive, who displayed our darkness through being the light piercing in to give us hope. We couldn't take it, and so we killed him. But even there, Jesus was holy. For his being killed by us, he sought to forgive us. In being killed by us, he fulfilled God's promises, not only from this text, but all the promises of the scriptures and the promises we've seen so far in Genesis. For in being crucified, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. In being crucified and rising again, Jesus guaranteed restoration for this world. In being crucified and rising again, Jesus took our sin on himself so that we could be forgiven, but also offered life in a world where sin and death are no more. And in so doing, as again Paul says in Galatians 3, Jesus Christ, this man in the line of Abraham, opened up God's blessing to all who would come to him so that they could be given everything they ever needed. They could be forgiven, loved, and restored to be God's people. And that's the church. That is us, North Park. And if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, that can be you right now. If you will turn to him, to the one who has taken your sin on himself, who bore it on his body on the cross and was crucified for you, if you turn to him, you can be right there with him, loved by him. But in turning to him, We are not just forgiven. We are not just loved. We are not just blessed. We are blessed. We are forgiven and loved. We are given all that we need so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can now turn towards the world and seek to show others that blessing. Seek to show others that love. Seek to show others that forgiveness that Jesus has lavished upon us. You see, this is exactly why after Jesus rose from the dead, He appeared to his disciples and said what has become known as the Great Commission. But as I read this, I want you to hear the echoes of Genesis in this text because so much of the words here are picking up on things in Genesis. Jesus begins by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And right there, that's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Jesus is now saying, I rule over it all. But then what he says next picks up on these words to Abraham. Therefore, go. Just as Abraham was called to go, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and give my love to others. Go and give my gospel to others. Go and give my forgiveness to others. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Set them apart. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Yes, be a distinct people. Be those who are baptized, who are set apart. But be a people who is also going towards the world, towards all the nations that Abram was set apart, so that blessing would extend to others. We are people. We are the church who have been saved. We've been given Jesus Christ. But that is not just a salvation from something. It is a salvation for something. To be called out into the world 
to show the love of Christ to others, to proclaim and practice the living Christ. That is what we are called to do. It's not about us. It's not about growing the church. It's not about North Park. We long for the church to grow. We long for that to take place, but that's because we want people to know Jesus. We want them to know what God has done. He has blessed us so that we might see that blessing extend to the nations. May we seek to do that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that before we ever followed you, you sent your son and he came willingly to save us. Thank you, Lord, that he gave himself for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be set free, so that we could be blessed with your very presence, with the presence of the Holy Spirit. But I pray, Lord, that that would not be something that we cling to for ourselves, but that we'd seek to give to others. Lord, may we be on mission, but not for ourselves, but for Jesus Christ, for what you are doing. May we be on mission to see all things renewed in him. May we follow where you would send us. May we go out and proclaim and practice the living Christ, the one who crucified and rose again so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be welcomed in, so that we could know the God of the universe who loves the world. May we know him. May we spread that blessing to others. Please, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.